Well, I, I want to welcome you. If you're here for the first time, I, I see a couple of new visitors, and we have some people that uh, were here last week, and we want to tell you how glad we are that you've joined us today. We're studying the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 13, and I'd like to have you turn there, if you would. I've entitled the uh, message today, The Unholy Trinity. And we're looking in particular at the Antichrist. Two weeks ago, we looked at Satan himself, who was called the Great Dragon. Today, we'll look at the Antichrist, the Beast. And then next week, we'll look at the third part of the Unholy Trinity, the False Prophet. And just before we dive into this, I, I just want to say that one of God's premier desires for you and for me is that we would lift up and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. That our lives would be such that when people see us and come in contact with us, right away they say, wow, there's something different about you. And that we verbalize right away without any embarrassment or shame, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life and He's completely changed me. I'm not who I used to be because of His grace and His mercy. And one of the premier responsibilities and delights of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus Christ. It's to lift up the name of Jesus. Now we have an enemy of our soul who doesn't get quite so excited about lifting up Jesus. In fact, he tears Jesus down and he wants to exalt himself. And the Bible tells us that his name is Satan. Ever since his fall, even before the creation of the world, the Bible teaches us that he wasn't satisfied worshiping God. He wasn't satisfied exalting God. Instead, he himself wanted to be exalted and lifted up to the highest place. This text that we're looking at today unveils the plan of the enemy to exalt himself. It's nothing the church needs to be frightened of. It's nothing that we need to be uh, uh, you know, shaking or quaking over. Because God has overcome the enemy even now and will finally overcome him in the end. But in the meantime, there's this period of time called the Great Tribulation that's coming upon the earth when he, for a brief period of time, will seem to have exalted himself in such a manner that the entire world will worship him. Now, before we go into the text here, I just want to give you a little bit of background to help you remember where we've been in the text and the conditions that the world will be facing at the time that this Antichrist or the beast is revealed. In chapter 6, if you recall, we had the seven seals that were, that were sealing the, the scroll that only the Lamb of God could open. Those seven seal judgments included things such as the peace of the earth being taken away from the world and wars breaking out everywhere. There's going to be terrible worldwide famine that's a part of the seal judgments of God. A third or a quarter, I'm sorry, of the world's population will be killed, losing their lives. That's 1.5 billion people if you go by today's uh, census of 6 billion people. There will be terrible earthquakes and cosmic disruptions in the heavenly areas. That's part of the sealed judgments. Now, if that weren't bad enough, the, the earth is recovering and reeling from these judgments and then come along the seven trumpet judgments, which we studied. And among those judgments include the following. Hail and fire will fall and burn up a third of all the vegetation on the earth, including the trees and the grass and the crops. A third of the sea will be turned to blood, killing everything in it. A great star will fall and pollute one-third of all drinkable water. That star is called wormwood. A third of all the light sources, the sun, the moon, the stars, will lose their ability to give light. And a terrible plague of locusts will 
descend upon the earth, come, actually coming up out of the earth, but descend upon mankind, these, these um, locusts have the power of a scorpion in their tail to sting and to torment. They won't kill anybody. They'll just make you wish you were dead. For five months, they will sting and torment mankind. And then finally, the final uh, seal judgment of, the, uh, of Revelation 8 is 200 million demonic horsemen will destroy one-third of mankind. That's another 1.5 billion people. For a total of 3 billion people, half the world's population will be lost by the time the second series of judgments take place. Now, imagine yourself you know, in the world at that time. I mean, it's absolute chaos. The world has been turned upside down. You've probably lost half of your friends. You're just scratching, trying to get by financially, economically. Politically, the world is going to be in a shambles. And the world is going to be completely ready and looking for someone to rescue them. In comes the Antichrist. Introduced by Satan himself, as we'll read this text in a moment. And he will come at a point when the world will believe anybody who can promise peace, food, economic stability, security. All the things that we have now that one day this earth will lose because of the wrath of God, Satan will promise. And the world at that point will be vulnerable to the deception, the great deception of Satan himself. Now, in chapter 13, verse 1, John tells us that the dragon was standing on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had been given authority, or he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Father, we come to you this morning and Once again, we want to thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourself and your character and your nature and your love and your plan for our lives and for this world. And Father, we also thank you, although the details at times are somewhat frightening and gruesome, God, we thank you that you have allowed us to see a picture of what's coming. It's sobering. 
But God, it's true. And we ask that you would help us to live wisely in these very, very challenging times and yet these very great times of opportunity for the church. And Holy Spirit, I want to surrender myself to you. I need your power. I need your wisdom. I need your heart as I speak to the people that you love and that Jesus Christ died for and who he continues to reveal himself to. I need your heart to be able to communicate appropriately these important words from Revelation chapter 13. So I surrender myself to you and pray that you'd open all of our hearts and help us to leave inspired and encouraged and exhorted to live more fully for you than ever before. And we pray all these things in the wonderful and matchless name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. One of the things that I want to point out to you before we begin talking about the beast is that the beast and Satan, the one who gives power to the beast, and also the false prophet who's coming, who we'll be looking at next week, really form an unholy trinity. And as you look at this, Satan really doesn't have any new ideas. He's not very, even very creative. All he does is he perverts and twists the work of God, the work of Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we look at this passage today, I'll be pointing out uh, a number of times similarities and parallels between the work of the beast and the work of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Satan wants to do, is that he wants to raise himself up as a false trinity to be worshipped. Now John begins by telling us that this beast that comes up out of the sea, according to the Greek, it means a wild and venomous monster, is that he is going to come from the sea. Now the sea oftentimes in Scripture just means the, the world of the Gentiles. If you look in Revelation chapter 17, it uses the same terminology and defines it for us as coming from the Gentiles. So uh, from a biblical perspective, the, the sea prophetically means the world, the people from the world. And so this beast will rise up and yet he uh, is not going to look like a beast. The Bible says is that he will be extremely attractive. And I'm not just talking about physically, although I believe that's probably likely as well. But he's going to be attractive because he'll have very persuasive skills. He will be a great orator and uh, a person who's able to have a tremendous amount of personal magnetism. Satan clothes himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come with horns and a cape. But he's going to come in such a manner that the world, when they see him, they say, Wow, this guy speaks like... He doesn't talk like regular politicians. He seems genuine and sincere, full of integrity. He seems to actually care about our plight here on earth. And he seems to have an understanding of spiritual things. And, and he seems to understand how to deal with, with these people that keep saying that this is the wrath of God. He seems to have all the answers. And the Antichrist will present himself as a man who can bring peace to a chaotic world at that point in human history. And the world will respond because, of course, they will be looking for a Savior at that time. But in this passage, God tells us exactly who He is. It doesn't matter what the world sees. God looks at a man's heart. And God calls this Antichrist a beast. A venomous, dangerous, brutal monster. God strips away the facade and exposes this man and his character he will become a bloody dictator, an ambassador of Satan himself. The word Antichrist, which is another name for the beast, 
Actually, in the Greek, anti can have two meanings. It can mean against or instead of. And so when you talk about antichrist, certainly Satan has a, 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 is a vehement hatred for the Messiah. And so he's against everything that the Messiah wants to do. And I'll just say as an aside, whatever God's plan is for your life, which we know from Scripture is good, Satan is a, a vehemently opposed to that. And he hates God, and he hates Jesus, and he hates the Spirit, and he hates those that belong to him. And he will do everything he can in his power to strip you of God's blessings and purpose. Fortunately, we have the protection of the Spirit and God and, and Satan can't really touch us. We're invincible in the sense that only what God allows can happen to us. And only what God allows is for our benefit. And so we're protected and uh, have nothing to fear from the enemy as I spoke a number of weeks back. So, the Antichrist will be against everything that's related to God, but also he will present himself as a great alternative to worshiping Jesus Christ. Instead of worshiping Christ, he is going to invite us to worship him. And there, there's going to be miraculous things that he does that will draw the world's attention that we'll talk about in just a moment. But as I said, John indicates that he comes from the sea and he goes on to describe him as having uh, seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. Now, these seven heads and the ten horns remind us, if you just flip over briefly, look at chapter 12, verse 3, as we have a description of Satan himself, the red dragon. Interestingly, it's almost verbatim, the same description. The red dragon who had seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. And so we have uh, an ambassador, someone made in the likeness of Satan himself. And, and I, I'll be drawing out the parallels, but do you see... Jesus Christ was made in the image of God. He, he's, he's, he is God, he's incarnate God, and yet he carries all the characteristics of God, and yet he was man. And here comes Satan and his beast, who he raises up out of humanity and gives him the characteristics that he has, very much in the same manner and style that God did with Jesus Christ. And so these seven heads and the ten horns are... Uh, indicating that he is coming from the same character quality and same mission and same likeness as Satan himself. Now, the seven heads and ten horns, I'll describe what I believe this means briefly. The seven heads are described for us and we're already told what they are. That's great about Scripture when it interprets itself and you don't have to figure out what it means. Revelation 17, 9-10 tells us that these seven heads are seven mountains and seven kings that sit on thrones in that area. Now, most expositors believe that this is a reference to the seven hills of Rome and the seven emperors who ruled during the, the first century of the church when they were persecuting the church. And so that's what is believed to be these seven heads. And I'll talk more about the Roman Empire in a few minutes. Now, the ten horns is a reference to the, a ten-nation confederation that the prophet Daniel in chapter 7 says will take place in the final days. Now, in Rome... In the first century, Rome was made up of, it was a conglomeration of a whole lot of nations that, that were conquered and finally came under the rule and reign of Rome. And they had different kings in different areas ruling the different provinces of Rome. Now we know that Rome uh, failed eventually and fell because of its corruption and its idolatry and its, um, you know, its, just its immorality. And so it crumbled from the inside. It wasn't conquered. It just crumbled from the inside. And, uh, but the Bible says that in the final days that that 
uh, empire will be revived. And there will be ten nations that will gather together in Europe and in the Middle East area to revive that Roman Empire made up of ten nations. And it's going to be what the Bible calls a one world government and what the world is aiming at, which is globalism. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes too. But in these final days, in response to uh, the world's catastrophic and chaotic condition because of God's judgments for its own sin and rebellion, these ten nations will gather together and it's already happening. If you watch the news or read it all, you'll know that we're already through the United Nations and the European market and the European Union. Uh, there's a, a, a growing trend among nations to band together and work together for world peace. In Europe, they have the euro dollar. We're, we're beginning to move the entire economy toward a one currency world. And so these things are not pipe dreams or fantasies. These are already happening. These are events that are occurring even now in our world. The Bible says that on the heads of these, uh, uh, on the heads of, of uh, this beast, are blasphemous names, and I'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Now John goes on and he says that he resembled a leopard, this beast, but had the feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And that may seem somewhat obscure if you're unfamiliar with prophecy in Daniel, but if you look at the prophecies in Daniel chapter 7, it's almost verbatim. He describes four beasts. And rather than a conglomeration of all four characteristics, he describes each of them one at a time. And they're a reference to Babylon, Medo-Persia, and the Greek Empire. And Daniel said, finally, there's a fourth beast that is fantastic. It's got horns coming out of its head. It's got multiple heads. And it's really a verbatim description of what we're looking at, this beast. The final empire of the world that will be formed around this beast and with his leadership to try to usurp the power of God. Now, John tells us that this beast is being given by the dragon power, the dragon's throne, and the dragon's great authority. Now, I'll just point out something again as we look at this. Who else gave someone else a throne and power and authority? God. God gave His Son dominion and power. He gave Him His throne. And as we know in Matthew 28, He gave Him all authority in heaven and on earth. So do you see how Satan is trying to mimic and he's trying to copy in a very perverted, demonic way the Trinity and the work of God? And so the dragon does have power and he gives that power to this beast. He imbues him with this unholy power. This word uh, power is dunamis in the Greek and it, it can mean just physical strength but it also means miraculous power. And we'll study as we move along next week. We'll discover that these, this uh, Satan and his beast and the false prophet actually are given miraculous power to work miracles. Things that are just astonishing. Things that are unheard of. Things that will win the world to a place where they will worship the beast. Now Daniel tells us in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 23, prophetically about this time, he says, In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, referring to the world, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He's referring to the beast, the, the gentleman we're studying about today. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He's receiving the delegated power of Satan. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people of God. 
and he will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, referring to Jesus Christ. So we have a description of Satan who really isn't operating with his own power, but he's operating in and through the power of Satan himself. Now the Bible says that he's been given Satan's throne to rule the world. He's been given Satan's authority to not only rule, uh, rule the ten-nation confederation, but to actually be the one who will rule globally the entire earth. That's Satan's design. From the beginning, he wanted to be worshipped. From the beginning, he wanted to rule and reign. And we aren't that far away from seeing the groundwork completed for that rule and reign. It's only been in the last, uh, oh, 30 or 40 years that people have started to talk about one world government, but most of us haven't really even heard about it until the last 10, 15 years. A number of presidents have talked about it. George Bush talked about one world order. And he, he spoke on this many times. Globalism is another uh, uh, watchword for this ten-nation confederacy. And the idea behind it is, is that the only way that we can experience peace in the world is to get, get rid of all of our borders, our economic, our political borders, and our religious borders. And until we eradicate those borders, we will never have peace. Now, there's a, a book by Alan Bloom called The Closing of the American Mind, and I'd like to read a quote from him uh, that details a little bit more about globalism and this one world government. He says, An essential component in establishing globalism is to eliminate any system of absolutes. In globalism, nothing in particular is right, and thus no one has the right to say that he is right. Planners of global systems want to remove religious beliefs and create a system which encompasses all religions. Religious beliefs can be deemed prejudicial and intolerant. And of course, Christianity is the most egregious offender, according to the world. Because Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And the world proclaims that you can come through gurus and, and Buddha and different Hindu gods through self-realization, through recognizing the Christ consciousness within you. But the Bible says that we can't come to the Father except through Jesus. And the world, frankly, chafes at that. They don't like that because it's too narrow. And so out of all the world religions, Christianity seems to be the one that is most exclusive. And that gives the world a problem. And that, I tell you something, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where that leaves us. That not long from now, and already happening in many parts of the earth, especially in Muslim countries, where Christians are being put to death for their belief that Jesus Christ is the way. There was a report that I read on CNN uh, just a couple of months ago, dated September 26, 1999, about Strobe Talbot. Uh, most of you may, may know who he is. He's a deputy secretary for the uh, Clinton administration. He's been serving uh, the Clinton administration since the beginning, so about seven and a half years or so, or seven years. And um, he's been shaping and orchestrating the political policies of the United States for our foreign policy. Listen to what he says. He says, I believe that the United States will not continue to exist in its current form. All states will recognize a single global authority. And when he says states, he's not talking about United States. He's talking about states, you know, 
nations, different nations, will recognize a single global authority, nationhood throughout the world will become obsolete. He goes on to say that all countries are basically social arrangements, accommodations to changing circumstances. So no matter how permanent and even sacred they may be at, uh, seem at one time, in fact they are all artificial and temporary. Here is one optimist reason for believing unity will prevail. Listen, this is his quote. Within the next hundred years, nationhood as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority. This isn't just happening in the United States and in the government of the United States. This is happening with nations all across the face of the earth. Europe is talking about it. Middle East is talking about it. The Soviet Union is talking about it. South America is talking about it. Everyone's talking about the global community and one world government. It will happen. And quietly and gradually the foundation, even now, is being laid. All you have to do is just read the newspaper and watch the news and have your eyes open and you'll see it happening. Now, that's Satan's objective to rule the world. And one of the things that he's going to do to amaze and astound the world and to convince them that he really is someone very powerful and special, verse 3 tells us that one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the result was is that the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Now, interesting again, the word wounded here in this scripture is the very same word that was designated to Christ, the lamb who was slain. It's the very same word in the Greek. In the English translation, it's different. But in the Greek translation, it's the very same word. So this beast will be appear to be slain. Not slain. It doesn't say that he will be slain. It says, seemed to have had a fatal wound. But it will be a mimicry, a demonic mimicry, of the death of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Revelation later that uh, we know how he dies. He's going to have a, a sword is going to be put to his head in some fashion. It, it, the, the weapon will be a sword and he will die, apparently die. I say apparently because the scripture says uh, seems to have died, but also because Satan doesn't really have the power to resurrect the dead. Only God has that power. But he will perform a, an act that the beast cooperates with to give the world the impression that this beast has actually died and has been slain in, the, in a similar fashion, certainly not the, the cross, but in a similar way to Jesus the Messiah. And then we find that the wound had been healed. So this beast will actually experience a pseudo-resurrection. And I believe that when that happens, that he himself will claim to be the reincarnated spirit of Jesus Christ. Or if he himself doesn't claim it, he will receive the accolades from others who will claim that he has been the reincarnated spirit of Jesus Christ. And so this wound will take place and he will be healed from this wound and the world will marvel, which means to be astonished, to be astonished greatly. And I think to myself, marveling is just one step away from worship and that's what the world will be led to. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it that the world having gone through these judgments of God, having, I'm sure there are going to be people with the word of God during that period of time, the saints who come to Christ, the tribulation saints who come to Christ during that traumatic time, will have the word, will be preaching the gospel, will be sharing with people, look, what's happening right now is exactly what 
the Bible prophesied would take place. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it that people, when this false Messiah, this charlatan, this beast, the Antichrist, is wounded and seems to be resurrected, why the world wouldn't say, oh my gosh, this is not a good man. He's a beast. He looks like a great guy. But right here it says that that's going to happen. Now I'm thinking to myself, why won't they do that? Well, we have the answer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. The Bible says in the end times that God will send a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie that Satan is God. Now some of you say, well, that's unfair. How can they be guilty if God has deluded them? Well, Romans tells us in chapter 1 that God turns people over in their rebellion to their desires. The Bible says that it's God's will that every man and woman come to the knowledge of the truth. But those who refuse to accept and receive Jesus Christ, He will turn them over and say, Okay, I've warned you. I've given you your word. I've given you my Son. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've given you the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you refuse, so be it. Be deluded and follow Satan. But it's not his desire or plan. Now the result of this delusion is that the world will worship the dragon. Now, this is one of those moments that seems so unjust if you didn't know the ending of this story. For Satan to be worshipped. You see, from the beginning, that's been his desire. Even before the creation of the world, we have a, an account in Isaiah and Ezekiel about the fall of Satan. Why did he fall? Because he, it wasn't enough to be the, the premier worship leader of heaven. It wasn't enough to be one of his most beautiful creations. He wanted to be worshipped himself as God. And the result was is that the Bible says that he was cast down. But for this brief moment in history, he will receive what he has longed for throughout history. But it won't last long. Now the world not only worshipped the dragon and his authority, but they also worshipped the beast and his power. And they're saying to the beast, you know, who is like the beast? Is there anyone that can defeat this guy? He's just invincible. And they're not saying it in a sense of, boy, I wish there was somebody. They're saying it's a rhetorical question. And if, unless you know the Old Testament well, you might miss something very important here. In the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, in Exodus, it's all over the Bible, there is a rhetorical question that's asked by those that are worshipping God. In the midst of their exaltation of, of God and, and who He is and, and His creation and His work and His love and His mercy and His faithfulness, oftentimes the writers would say, Oh, who is like God? Is there anyone like God? And the answer is not no one. There isn't anyone like Him. But in these last days, Satan will put it in the hearts of men and women who have refused to exalt Jesus Christ and to submit to His leadership. And he puts in their mouths a praise for the beast. And they say, who is like the beast? And in their minds, they'll be thinking, no one is like the beast. And they will have fallen prey to the great deception of the enemy. Now, the Antichrist is going to be very active doing a number of things. And we find some of his activity in verse 5 and, and forward. It says, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, 
I'll just talk about this briefly because I'm going to bring blasphemy up in a few more minutes. But blasphemy doesn't mean cursing. A lot of people think it's like you know taking, taking the Lord's name in vain. And that, that may be a part of blasphemy. But that's not the, the most severe type of blasphemy. There are two aspects to blasphemy that I'll share with you briefly. The first is when you attribute some evil to God. So, for instance, uh, an example of that would be uh, when you're sharing with uh, friends and you know, uh, whoever you're witnessing and they say, I could believe in God except how could God kill those children in Sudan? How could God let, in Uganda, AIDS to go unabated? How could God let you know, that child be molested or, or raped? How could God allow this? Why would God do that? And you see, when, when somebody asks that question, they're attributing evil to God. They're not recognizing that we've a, we're a fallen world and it's our own sin that causes this corruption. They blame God. That's blasphemy. But there's another form of blasphemy and that's when we, when we refuse to give God what He does deserve. So for instance, idolatry is blasphemy. When we give to someone else or something else what belongs to God alone. So for instance, if I bow down before an idol and worship, that's blasphemy. Because I'm taking what belongs to God and giving it to someone else. Let's make it contemporary for us. I don't think probably many of us are bowing down before, before idols, although that's certainly not unheard of on this island. But most of us, if there's an idol in our life as Christians, it has to do with money or with a person or with a career. But the Bible says that if we worship anything and love anything more than God that we can be guilty of blasphemy. We are taking what belongs to God and giving it to someone or something else. And so this beast will utter proud words and blasphemies and we'll talk about that in a few minutes and he exercises this authority for three and a half years. Now, in verse 6, he talks about specifically the blasphemies that he will speak. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. So we find out specifically that he's going to blaspheme three things. The first is that he will blaspheme God. Prophetically, David, I mean, Daniel again tells us in Daniel chapter 11 that this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. I'm thinking to myself, what haven't we heard already? What could people possibly say at that point in history that's never been spoken before? And yet, in his demonic dementia, this evil beast will be able to come up with new ways to blaspheme God that have never been heard before. The Bible says that he will slander God's name and his dwelling place, which refers to his temple. We know, uh, according to uh, 2 Thessalonians, that in the final days, he will commit the abomination that causes desolation. After three and a half years of a peace treaty with Israel, which will astound the world, he will stand up in the temple of God and he will blaspheme God and demand to be worshipped himself instead of God. The Bible also tells us that he will slander those in heaven. It could be angelic beings, it could be the hosts of God, it could be the 24 elders, but there's also speculation that those in heaven may refer to believers who have completely given themselves to God in such a way that they don't consider their citizenship here on earth any more valid. They consider themselves citizens of the kingdom of God. And therefore, they live their lives as citizens of that kingdom. And in that sense, some believe that Satan will slander even the church. Either way, we know that Satan's objective in our lives is to destroy us. And part of the way 
that he will do that and accomplish it is through slander, which, by the way, just means saying things that aren't true. Slander is, is uh, gossip, is saying something that's true to someone that doesn't need to hear it, and slander is, is actually saying something that's not true about someone, and, uh, and that's the difference. So the, this beast will slander the church, the temple, and those who live in heaven. I was um, talking with a brother just a few days ago, and as we were talking, he was mentioning to me that he watched this program, Bible Phonies. Has anybody seen that? It's on the same station that we're on, on, uh, on Hawiki, Channel 12. Has anybody seen that program? Okay, well, the guy, he, uh, he speaks, um, uh, he's very anti-God. He's very anti-Christian. And his whole program is, is denigrating to the Christian belief. He spends all of his time refuting the Bible and trying to uh, prove that the Bible is false and that Jesus is not the Messiah. And uh, in the course of doing this, of course, he ridicules the church and those who believe in Jesus Christ. But this friend that I was talking to that had watched this program shared with me that on the most recent program that uh, uh, this, uh, this gentleman and the person who's with him who calls herself a reverend were taking pages of the Bible that they believed were false and were not true and ripping them out of the Bible on the air and shredding them up and uh, he put them in his chicken coop to catch the chicken feces. Uh, as a way to, to, to show his disgust and his revulsion at the Word of God. That's, I would say that's blasphemous. He went on to uh, actually take communion on the air. And as they were taking the communion, they read the communion story, or the, the uh, account of the communion. And when they got to the words that Jesus, this was Jesus' blood and body, they you know, spit the communion out in revulsion mocking uh, one of the sacraments that God has given us. Now, I don't cast any aspersions on this gentleman. God knows his heart. And I think that uh, for someone like this, uh, first of all, God loves that man. He doesn't love what he's doing. But I found oftentimes that people who are that antagonistic are often the ones that God will eventually win. It's not always the case, but I would encourage us to pray for, for him that God would win him to Christ. He doesn't know the Lord and he's, and he's, uh, he's lost and he's been deluded and deceived by the enemy. But the point is, is that that kind of slander is taking place right now on television. It, we don't have to wait you know, 20 or 30 years to see this kind of thing happen. It's already happening. And, and he has every right politically and, and uh, socially to go ahead and do these things. He's got the power to put on the air what he'd like to put on the air. But nonetheless, the enemy will slander in really grotesque ways uh, the Christians, the believers, the saints at this period of time, and certainly God and his temple. Now we find that in uh, um, verse 7 that the enemy or the beast is given power to do certain things. One of those things is to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And when I read this, I thought, you know, I can handle the part about God allowing the beast to make war with the saints. But I have a real hard time understanding how God can let the beast conquer the saints. Are you with me? And as I thought about this and prayed about it, I, I, I already kind of knew the answer, but I want to share with you uh, my thoughts on that. The problem with that question is the premise upon which the question is based. The premise of the question is, is that I'm the center of the world and God will only do things that are to my benefit. And anything that's not to my benefit can't possibly be from God or God's will. That's a wrong premise. The right premise is, is that this life is not about me. 
and it's not about you, and God can do whatever He wants. And His ultimate purposes is His glory and His praise and His honor. And so if my life can be best magnifying the glory and the praise of God through death, then I'm saying, yes, I want to do whatever brings glory and honor to God. And so the question of how could God let Satan and the beast conquer the church is the wrong question. The question should be, how will it magnify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And you know it will. And so I want to apply this even more personally. Sometimes in our own lives we go through difficulties. All of us struggle with different things and we have different things maybe even on our mind today. And we're thinking to ourselves, how could God let these things happen to me? You know, He says He loves me, He says He has a great plan for me, but then this happens. How could it be that God would do this to me? You see the wrong premise? Me. That's the wrong premise. The right premise is God. And if God can receive glory and praise, I don't care how He does it in my life. For most of us, it's going to be through the proclamation of the gospel and through an obedient life and through uh, sharing the love of Christ and being a light in darkness. But for some of us, possibly, it may mean through martyrdom. But nonetheless, may God be glorified. May His name be exalted. Now, in conquering the saints, He's also going to be given authority over every tribe, language, and nation. He's going to achieve the dream of every human tyrant in human history. From Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan to Napoleon and Hitler. And for a brief period of time, he will assume that dominion over the entire world. And the result is that the whole world will worship him except those who are recorded in the book of life. Those who have received Jesus as their Savior. And Daniel chapter 12 prophetically tells us that those who have received him will be delivered. What does he mean delivered? Well, I believe it will be delivered in two ways. One, through the rapture. But those who are tribulation saints who come to Christ after the the rapture of the church will be delivered through death. A lot of us don't understand and recognize that death is a gift from God. It's a transition. It prevents us from having to live in this sinful world forever. But God gives us the freedom at the appointed time when we've accomplished His work to be delivered and transitioned into His kingdom forever and ever and ever. And so death is not anything to be feared by, the, by a believer. The unbeliever fears death because they don't know what's coming. Or they do know what's coming. Either way. But the believer has no fear. Now, John finishes up by saying that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Now, just an interesting note here. In all the other passages in Revelation where there's a description of this call to, uh, to listen, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you notice that to the churches and the Spirit are missing? Why? Because I believe the church is already raptured. And now there's, the only people that, he, that, the, that the Lord can speak to are those that are left, the inhabitants of the earth, those who didn't believe in Christ, but also to the saints who at that point will believe in Jesus. And there's a little bit of a complicated text here in verse 10. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. Some translations say, if anyone kills with a sword, he will be killed. In other words, God will exact vengeance. Let me share with you the two views. With the first view, it means that vengeance belongs to God. It's like if, if 
somebody kills with a sword, God will punish them. If that's what it means, it means that Christians, believers during this time, are not to resort to human methodology or human strategy or human force in order to, uh, to uh, mete out punishment. They are to trust in God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now, if it means that <clears throat> what it says in the NIV text is that if you're going to be killed with a, with a sword, you're going to be killed with a sword. And if you're going to be taken captive, you're going to be taken captive, which is almost like saying, look, you can't, you're not going to be able to stop the purposes and will of God. And if that's the case, then it's a clarion call to the, to the saints at that time to submit themselves fully to God's grace and mercy, knowing that He is sovereign and His purposes are always perfect. Either way, God calls us to be a people who submit to Him. And I would suggest that though we're not suffering as these tribulation saints will, is that God is calling you in whatever circumstances you're facing to be a man or a woman who doesn't resort to human methodologies or strategies, but a man or a woman who submits themselves, himself or herself, to Almighty God. And that you become a man or a woman of prayer. And that you find your deliverance through prayer and through the power of God and not through your own devices. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. One of the favorite verses of Scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. So this is really an exhortation by God to put your trust totally in Him. And it's certainly for the, uh, the church or the uh, saints at that time, but it's for the church today as well. Now God finishes by uh, giving an exhortation to these saints. He tells them two things. First is that you must patiently endure. These saints will be called to endure patiently through a very difficult time. And they have the example of Christ in Hebrews uh, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 3 that says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So God, through Christ, has already endured everything that can be endured. And he says, follow my example. Follow my example of enduring patiently. And then God also says through John to be faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to who? Well, faithful to Jesus Christ. Faithful to the Son of God, the Lamb of God who paid the price, who is the true Messiah, the authentic deliverer of the world from sin. Revelation 2 tells us about faithfulness to one of the churches. He says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will, be, you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and this is the reward, and I will give you the crown of life. Paul had that vision in front of him during his ministry. He knew, that he was, he knew what he was aiming at. And I want to ask you, do you know what you're aiming at? For Paul, it was the crown of life. It was the reward of God. Sometimes I think we lose track of what we're aiming at. But God wants you to aim at the very same thing, the reward of God, the inheritance of Jesus Christ, salvation, eternity with Him. And Paul says, because of that, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. And then he says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And he says, not only to me, but also to all those who have been longing for His appearing. Satan is an angel of light. He is the great deceiver. The beast looking like an incarnation of Jesus Christ 
being slain, apparently slain, and, and then resurrecting and demonstrating the power and authority and throne of the dragon, Satan himself. All mimicking and mocking God. But there is only one true God. There is only one true Savior. And there is only one true church. I'm encouraging you. We live in a time of unprecedented opportunity to live for Jesus. I can walk around and share the word. I can preach the gospel. We can gather anytime we want for fellowship and meetings. And yet I have to say that I'm afraid that oftentimes we've squandered that opportunity. And we figured we've got all kinds of time. Let's be busy building our homes and driving our cars and building our careers and becoming somebody. But this window of opportunity, I don't believe, will be open forever. And my encouragement to you and my exhortation even to myself as I speak is let's make every moment count. Let's redeem the time and live only for Jesus because at the end of all of it, God has stored up for you a crown of righteousness and you will be richly rewarded as you serve God with everything and every power that He gives you through His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, make us mighty men and women of Jesus Christ. God, even as Scripture says that forceful men forcefully advance the kingdom of God, I pray that, God, we wouldn't be passive anymore, Lord. I thank You for this wonderful group of believers who are so committed to You. But God, You're taking us to another step, another level of devotion to You. Open our eyes, God. Help us to see these things are real even though they haven't occurred yet. John saw them in the future and told them to us that we might be warned. And we ask, God, that You would help us to live for things at last. Protect us from the deception of the enemy and, God, help us to live fully for You. Worshipping no one else, bowing down before no one else, and realizing that life is not about us, but it's about Your glory and Your praise and Your honor and Your exaltation. And to that we give ourselves with great delight. Be with us this week and help us to walk closely with you. In Jesus' name, amen.